0: The planet is warming. This isn't conjecture and it isn't political. It's the overwhelming conclusion of climate scientists from all over the world. Now, for a long time, the debate has been over whether and how we mitigate the threats posed by climate change. But today's guest warns that debate needs to be expanded to include a discussion about the things we must do to adapt human existence to a warmer planet. She's Alice Seahill this week a story in the public square Hello, and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by Alice C. Hill, the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice is also the author of a great new book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. Alice, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you, my pleasure.
0: So, uh, I mentioned the book, The Fight for Climate After COVID 19. Uh, give us the 30,000 foot overview.
1: Well, the book captures uh, the lessons that we can learn about dealing with catastrophic risk by examining what happened during the pandemic, one catastrophic risk, and seeing how we can learn to have better outcomes with another unfortunately, even worse catastrophic risk, climate change. So I called the lessons learned to try to help have a better future as we see these impacts from climate change, deeper droughts, bigger storms, greater heat events, food insecurity, water insecurity, all these cascading impacts that come from a warming planet.
0: I, you know, Alice, I, I I I chuckled a little bit in the acknowledgements to your book. You you noted that when a friend of you had asked, "What will it take to stop climate change?", you had responded before the pandemic, a pandemic. Uh, you concede that you were wrong about that. What 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 surprised you?
1: Well, to be uh, perfectly frank, this pandemic was not as deadly. It has certainly has had massive consequences, shut down the economy of many nations, thrown people out of work, really increased uh, great uh, trauma and tragedy for millions across the globe. But it wasn't as deadly. Uh, And if it had been more deadly, of course, that would have mean there was lowered economic activity. And with lowered economic activity, we have lowered pollution levels, and it's that pollution that's just accumulating around our globe, really since uh, the Industrial Revolution, and that blanket of pollution traps heat, which brings uh, all these terrible impacts that result from the fact that temperatures are continuing to rise. It's a little bit like When you were a kid and your mom might have come in your room and put a blanket on you and then you woke up in the middle of night and you were just hotter. You'd want to kick off that blanket. Well, we can't kick off this blanket that we formed around the globe. And what it's doing is trapping the heat, and that is causing a great deal of havoc and will cause much more in the future.
2: So in November, Alice, you were at the Glasgow Global Climate Change Summit. What came out of that uh, of importance that that our audience should know that people should know if you can give us an overview of and it just wrapped up, I would note uh, as we're taping uh, in November.
1: Well, the most important outcome is that the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal is still alive Uh, as the president of the COP26 stated uh, it's alive, but it has a weak Pulse. And what the importance of that is, is that scientists have told us that we need to contain the rise of temperatures to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial times because it's all this human activity from burning coal deforestation uh, our our building practices that have shot up all this carbon pollution in the atmosphere. Uh, And what we wanna do is make sure that that pollution doesn't cause more heating than 1.5 degrees. Going into this Conference of the Parties, that's what it's called by the UN, 197 nations are part of the UN Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change. And that has a group of nations have been meeting since the early nineties trying to tackle the problem of climate change. Of course, there was a very important Conference of the parties, that's what they call their uh, annual conventions uh, in Paris in 2015, where nations agreed on the Paris Agreement. And ultimately, the goal of that is to keep the heating below 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's preferable. So, the meeting in Glasgow, 25,000 people in the midst of COVID descended in Scotland, and at the very last minute, they were able to include in the final document, uh, it's called the Glasgow Pact, they were able to include this goal that continues to be vibrant uh, for the nations. Whether we can accomplish that is another story, but at least we've set that as the ambition for the world.
2: So you, you talk about carbon pollution, carbon emissions, and obviously the need is to reduce that, but it's difficult. Why is it so difficult for, one nation all nations to reduce that I mean that is clearly you know the number one step that could be taken to to going forward
1: well it turns out that carbon pollution is systemic across our society it's uh, uh, in our agriculture so we have uh, our emissions and that would it's also carbon pollution and methane which is a another form of heat trapping gas but it Uh, isn't as long lived as carbon. Carbon can be up in the atmosphere for uh, several hundred years, methane maybe two decades, but during those two decades it causes even more heating. Uh, And so about a half of the heating that's already occurred so far, 1.1 degrees Celsius, um, that's the amount we've heated so far, about half of that has come from methane. So uh, trying to contain all these gases is difficult because we're emitting them everywhere. Uh, we emit them in with planes, uh, with our shipping, with our building, with our transportation, fossil fuels uh, that power our cars, or the way we uh, create electricity, Some of it's in many places of the world. It's still dependent on coal, which is the uh, most carbon emitting way to create power. So reeling back all those choices that have been made over many decades, huge amounts of money invested in those choices, turns out to be hard because their economic consequences. We've heard about coal miners who will lose their jobs. Uh, there's all sorts of changes that cause loss to some, and then of course, long-term gain for all, but we're in that point of having to transition, which it proves is quite complex and will be at times quite contentious.
0: Alice, in fact, in, in, in your new book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19, you argue that controlling carbon emissions is not enough, that we need, we need to begin to move the debate beyond mitigation to adaptation, let's break this into two parts. So first of all, what? why isn't mitigation enough?
1: Well, mitigation, which of course is cutting these harmful emissions uh, would keep us uh, from getting to truly unmanageable levels of heating. But the way this blanket works is that there's a delay in the heating. So even if we got our emissions to zero uh, tomorrow, There would be continued impacts that we would suffer for some period of time uh, anywhere from five years to 20 years and those impacts bring the kinds of rain bombs that we've seen where in Houston. We saw close to four feet of rainfall in just a few days. There's no place that we have built that can contain that much rain at once, but with warmer temperatures, the uh, clouds hold more moisture and then it just dumps all at once. Similarly, the wildfires that we've seen in California, you know, in 2017 and 2018 the wildfires there wiped out a quarter century worth of profits for insurance companies. The insurers were caught by surprise. These wildfires were bigger, more damaging, hotter uh, than any that the state had experienced before. And we will see more of those, even if we get our emissions to zero. But we won't, we don't have a plan to get our emissions to zero tomorrow. Our goal right now is to be net zero 2050, that's for the most nations that are part of the Paris Agreement. There are a few, uh, China has said 2060, India has said 27, they're, 2070, they are both big emitters. So we're going to be dealing with the harm that climate change brings for quite some time. And that means we need to make sure that certainly any new investments are resilient or can with handle the types of impacts we'll see. And then we need to figure out what we do with all those existing investments to make sure that they are resilient as well.
0: Well, and so that brings us around to adaptation. So what what do you mean when you talk about adaptation in the context of climate change?
1: Well, climate change is really typically talked about as two sides of the corn, the mitigation or adaptation, which is adjusting and preparing for these impacts. There's also the broader term of resilience, which is, uh, for a variety of reasons, captured a great deal of attention recently because it's not so directly tied to adaptation. Adaptation really means preparing for the things that climate change brings. Resilience is a broader term. It means the ability to prepare for, respond to and recover from disasters, including those that are worsened by climate change. Uh, So we have seen a great deal of attention in these last 30 plus years of talking about climate change on the cutting emissions side, the mitigation. And that's understandable. That was, if we, if we had been successful in doing that, we wouldn't really need to get to adaptation, but we haven't been successful. So now we know, and we already have seen these impacts. Just look at what's happened this past year during the pandemic, flooding in uh, China, in the United States and Europe. We've seen uh, the Arctic hit really unprecedented levels of heating, which causes that permanently frozen ground to thaw and the infrastructure begins to tilt and we have an entire ocean opening up for shipping in the Arctic. And then of course we've seen wildfires in Greece and the United States across the globe, extreme heat hitting in the Pacific Northwest and other areas. So we are being pounded right now by climate change and that has made it much more urgent for us to make better decisions about how to prepare for these very damaging events that kill people they destroy livelihoods and cause long-term economic harm
0: we need to take a quick moment for station identification you're listening to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. The show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States, the POTUS Channel, number 124. Story in the Public Square is produced by a great crew at Rhode Island PBS that makes us sound great, and we're grateful to them. I'm Jim Lutis. When I'm not on the air, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Virginia University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. This week, we're talking with Alice Hill a veteran of the Obama administration. She's now the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice is also the author of a provocative new book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. You can follow Alice on Twitter too, at Alice underscore, the letter C underscore,
2: Hill. So despite this, despite what we see in the news, can see with our own I read about see on television in the U.S., it's it's nearly impossible to get bipartisan political consensus about the reality of climate change. What can be done to change that dynamic, which seems to me has to be changed for us to make more progress?
1: Well, you've raised a very important point, and it's fascinating. The Washington Post just issued a new poll that showed that the split between Democrats and Republicans has actually grown uh, most recently. And so we have um, most Democrats are concerned about climate change. And we have less than 50% really of uh, equivalent concern in the Republican party. That means garnering the support on a bipartisan basis is quite difficult one dynamic that we are seeing is uh, that young people are much more attuned to what climate change means of course they will just by the nature of their lives uh, their, the life they'll live during the times they will see a lot more of this harm than i will for example because they'll be living closer to 2100 where it's, it just will continuously get worse So they have uh, begun to express great frustration. We saw this when I was in Glasgow. Uh, Many, many young people, uh, many young women, as a matter of fact, coming out and saying it's time for a different outcome. So that will grow, in my opinion, uh, because they're quite sensitive, the young people are quite sensitive that the older generation is handling, handing them a problem that will plague their lives and the lives of their children going forward.
2: So when you say young people, you're talking, you know, teenagers, as well as people in their 20s and 30s. And it sounds to me like you're, you're finding a bit of optimism and hope in, in, in those people who now number, of course, in, in, in great numbers. And do you find hope there?
1: Well, I think we also find depression there. Uh, The reports are that something like 70% of youth around the world are greatly worried about climate change. A significant percentage are deciding not to have children because they're concerned about the future those children would have. So there is a despondency. uh, And that's something that I see in my encounters. I speak to a lot of student groups uh, and, some will express despair at the problem that they have to deal with my response to that is uh, from my own experience it is distressing learning about what's ahead with climate change and realizing that we could have a different future if we made different choices but we're having a hard time doing that it it can be uh, quite concerning but i find and i encourage all young people uh, to get engaged The amazing thing to me about climate change, I'm a former judge, uh, and when I was on the bench, when I wore the robe, uh, I remember we would have a problem before us uh, in the courtroom, and I might suggest, well, how about we solve this this way? And often the the lawyers would say, oh no, judge, Uh, sorry, you can't do that. The law says you have to do it this way. Or, oh no, we tried that. It doesn't work. You never hear that. With climate change, because no human has ever confronted the problems that we are confronting today. So that means that it's all hands on deck and there's a great opportunity for innovation for new ideas for figuring out new solutions. And that can give a, even a sense of joy in being engaged in solving the problem rather than passively sitting on the sidelines feeling like it's happening to me. So that's my words to the young uh, is uh, if you're engaged, you could make a difference. And certainly that will help you feel uh, a better mastery of the challenge that's ahead and less just sheer fear.
2: So beyond, be, beyond being politically engaged you know, on the larger stage, as it were, and, and this would be something that I would ask you to uh, react to in terms of young people and older people, what can individuals do on sort of a daily basis, whether it's activity in their community, whether it's how the, you know, what they apply to their lawns or, or so forth and so on. You see, see what I'm saying here, that what's the micro view? You know, what can an average person, quote unquote, average person, do if he or she can't engage in in larger scale political activity?
1: Well, the first and foremost is to talk about climate change. Uh, We have far too few discussions about climate change, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate. When you're all gathered around the family table, it's time to talk, start talking about what the solutions are for climate change. Uh, and we've seen that many people shy away from this. Um, so it should be front and center um, of any discussion. Now, uh, just a personal aside, I, I know that. It can get a little overbearing. My family, in fact, has me on the timer because I'm happy to talk about climate change all day long. I hope it's
2: a long timer, though. (laughs) That's about five minutes. That's enough, Mom.
1: We're done with climate change today. But uh, I would encourage everyone uh, to talk about climate change. And the other thing is to start learning about what the climate impacts will be in your community. And then start asking, well, are we planning for the type of flooding that we see? If you're in a coastal community like you are uh, in Rhode Island, uh, if you or do we have a heat plan? What are we doing uh, in ther- terms of thinking about uh, heat extremes that mean that we won't have air conditioning because the power system won't work? So, it's beginning to ask those questions and examine it, and then all of us can start looking at ha- how we we live, uh, and that means do we need to get on the plane as much to go to meetings? Because uh, air travel is one area where it's very difficult to reduce the carbon emissions. planes We don't have an electric plane that can fly far enough. Um, so, uh, But short haul trips, could we do that on a train? Can we do that in another way? Uh, we're seeing a huge push for electric vehicles. When you're considering your next vehicle, consider an electric vehicle. Uh, looking at your choices of what you eat, um, a agriculture and particular um, production of meat now produces a lot of uh, harmful pollutants in terms of that gathering blanket. So can you cut down on your meat consumption, uh, move to a plant-based diet? Thinking about your own uh, reuse of materials and getting away from uh, using a lot of plastics. Do you have a water bottle that you use, reuse frequently? things. And can one individual make a material change to the outcome on climate change? No. But all of us together can begin to make a material change in climate change, particularly those who live in a rich nation like the United States, we per capita per person produce a lot of emissions. So dialing back our own uh, pollution levels uh, can help. And one of the important things that came out of a study that uh, global scientists across the globe issued this August in preparation for the Glasgow meeting stated that every little incremental increase in heat brings greater impacts. So as we just find more and more ways to dial back, we can keep the globe from heating up to temperatures that will become unmanageable.
0: Alice, I know uh, one of your jobs in the Obama administration was to help the federal government think through how to plan for climate change. What's the current state of planning, both at the federal, the state, the local levels in the United States for the kind of climate change future uh, you're talking about in the book?
1: Well, right now, the, the status is it's a bit checkered uh, under President Biden. Uh, he ordered all agencies to produce adaptation plans, which they have. So those are plans for how each agency, say, uh, housing urban development, the Department of Homeland Security, Environmental Protection Agency, how each of them will handle climate adaptation. But we don't yet in the United States have a national adaptation plan. In my opinion, a national adaptation plan would really help define the role of the federal government in terms of climate change for all the stakeholders. So cities, states, tribal communities, they would understand what the federal government can do and what the federal government can't do. Uh, And then we need adaptation plans for communities, uh, for states. And we have a very checkered outcome on that. We have some cities that have been very forward leaning, for example, Boston, uh, but we have other cities that simply haven't gotten to the issue of adaptation. And the risk of not considering adaptation is that investments made today, say in improving a road, um, building a bridge, deciding where a development could occur could put people at risk and put those investments at risk because they don't consider that flooding will be much worse uh, during uh, the future, uh, future decades, and that will harm the choices uh, that were made. And we've seen that quite clearly in the United States, you know, more investment has occurred, for example, in the state of New Jersey in areas at risk of flooding than not in about the last 10 years or 15 years. Even despite
0: Superstorm Sandy?
1: Superstorm Sandy did not, it had an immediate uh, impact, and that's what we see immediately people were, oh, that's kind of dangerous, but over time, no, um, definitely increases, it turns out we all want to live uh, with views of water, we love it, Uh, but we need to think about whether those properties will be safe going forward, and we see a similar phenomenon in terms of building in what we call the wildland urban interface. People want to also live near forests or grasslands. And of course, with greater drought and hotter conditions, those areas are at much greater risk for wildfire. So we're seeing those developments uh, be harmed. And when it comes to climate change, we need to think about land use. Does it make sense to build where we're building if it's going to be a hotter world?
0: Hey Alice, we've got about a minute and a half left here. I but I we're taping this in mid December. Excuse me, mid November, where a lot of Americans are grappling with supply chains issues. Whether whether it is uh, for your holiday shopping or uh, just going to the grocery store, your business owner and you can't get your your products in. Um, How might climate change affect future supply chains?
1: Climate change will disrupt supply chains. It already is disrupting supply chains. We saw this after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Turns out we all discovered that Puerto Rico is responsible for a lot manufacture of medical tools, uh, materials, including intravenous bags that are used across hospitals um, across the, the globe. Once Hurricane Maria hit and power was lost for almost a year, manufacturing plummeted It was just too hard for employees to get to the plants, even if those plants had access to generators for power. Uh, And so prices skyrocketed up to 600%. And then hospitals looking at, we can't get any intravenous bags started using syringes to try to um, give these medicines or whatever they needed to give to sick patients. The price of syringes skyrocketed. And we just know that we have concentrated production in areas and if those areas are hit, it has it ripples across the economy. So this is an area of great concern. I have just chaired a working group for, um, for the National Academy of Engineering and Medicine and Sciences to look at this issue. We have a lot of work ahead to get to real solutions to understand how climate change will disrupt our supply chains. One thing we know, it will.
0: Well, Alice, I think we could talk to you for another three days, but unfortunately we are out of time. She is Alice Hill, the book is The Fight For climate after COVID-19. Thank you so much for being with us. That is all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit pellcenter.org. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.